These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Last episode, we looked at the character and power of Ishtar, goddess of love and war. And if you don't think that love and war are deeply connected concepts, go back to last episode to see how power and passion relate to form these two deeply human occupations. This week, we will look at what is probably Ishtar's most famous story, the tale of her love for Dumazid. Now, there is a principal story that forms the core here, the tale of Ishtar's descent into the underworld. But there are so, so many ancillary tales of the love and later tragedy that it would be a shame if I didn't incorporate them into the tale. So today's story will be something of an amalgamation, beginning with her marriage to Dumazid. Now, who exactly is Dumazid? Well, we'll see pretty quickly that he is a shepherd, but aside from that, his identity is very fluid from story to story. At times, he seems to almost be a commoner, while he is also twice claimed as a king on the Sumerian kings list, said to have ruled Uruk briefly between Lugalbanda and Gilgamesh, as well as the antediluvian city of Bad Tibira. On the other hand, he is also worshipped as a god, though whether he was supposed to be a man raised to a god or simply a god from the start is very unclear, and it seems that opinions on the identity of Dumazid differed even among priests in ancient Mesopotamia. Whoever Dumazid is, however wealthy he turns out to be, we are very certain that he is a shepherd. What's more, his brother Enkindu was a farmer. There are actually a fair few tales in the Mesopotamian tradition that have this farmer versus shepherd structure, to the extent that we can even say the biblical tale of Cain and Abel is pretty derivative of a larger genre, except that as we open our story this time, there is no pretense of a neutral choosing between farmer and rancher. Indeed, Ishtar has her set from the very beginning on the farmer, Dumazid's brother Enkimdu. Now, what is it about Enkimdu that has so won glorious, beautiful Ishtar's heart? Well, one day she was walking around and spotted some flax reeds. Those reeds made her want them to be already redded and spun, twined, warped, woven, and bleached in a hymn that seems to both inform us how linen cloth was made and is almost certainly a reference to the practice of divine marriage, which will show up at the end of our show. But once she has asked for linen to be made from flax, and had her interlocutor promise to do all the steps for her, she then asks who will lay on that linen with her, as if they were lovers. Clearly, there is some desire stirring within our goddess of love, and it is directed towards whoever can provide her with nice clothes, or nice bedsheets in this particular case. But rather than marrying, or simply sleeping with, the farmer brother Enkimdu, her brother Shamash, who is the sun itself and the other major patron deity of Uruk, urges her to sleep with the shepherd brother instead. And when the sun itself is your wingman, you must be doing pretty good for yourself. But Ishtar absolutely refuses this suggestion. Not only is she disdainful of shepherds in general, ew, they're gross, but it quickly becomes an economic argument. She prefers colorful linens and delicious grains to the wool and butter of a shepherd. She argues generally for the superiority of agricultural produce over animal products, not just in a vegan sense, rather as a matter of preferences. 
But finally, Dumasid, the shepherd, is allowed to speak, and he seems a little indignant at having just been trash-talked for the last 40 lines. In what way is the farmer superior to me, he asks. For every linen gown he can make, I can give a whole sheep. For every beer I can give milk, for every hard beer, because they differentiated between light beer and truly alcoholic beer that you were supposed to get drunk off of, for every hard beer I can give fermented milk, which sounds nasty, for bread I can give curds, for beans I can give cheese, and once we have exchanged equally all our production, I will still have plenty of milk and butter left over. And things are starting to get heated now, but instead of ending like the farmer versus shepherd debate in the book of Genesis with fratricidal murder, Enkimdu comes up to his brother and says, look, we don't have to fight. Just graze your sheep in appropriate places. They can even come to my fields after the harvest to eat the stubble. Just don't let them in the field when my crop is growing. This, of course, is the central conflict between farmers and ranchers, where you can graze your sheep land usage. And Dumasid claps his brother on the shoulder and says, when I marry the goddess, I'm going to be relying on you, brother. I will trade you some of my product so that I can provide my wife with both animal and agricultural products, whatever she desires. And so the conflict between shepherd and farmer is resolved peacefully in this Sumerian context, with all accepting the economic dominance of pastoralists at least in this story, and the goddess of Ishtar marrying Dumazid. It seems odd to us to have a woman's heart being won over by such cold economic reasoning, but it's easy to gloss over and forget that the Bronze Age peoples were all living in bone-crushing poverty, only one step at best above subsistence, and only one bad year away from starvation. Even the poorest people today, outside of war zones and other completely destroyed places, enjoy luxuries that simply didn't exist for even the wealthiest in Sumeria. Next up, we have an account of the wedding. It is very long and only of interest to the sort of people who watch those wedding shows on TV or read bridal magazines. Essentially, Dumazid first purchases all sorts of food, fish, birds, wine, and butter of the highest quality. The groom then assures his bride that his family will accept her into the family. Then Ishtar gets all bathed and dressed until she is as beautiful as a moonbeam, and the two kiss. After the ceremony, the two go into Dumazid's house and lay down on the bed before an altar to the gods. They pray, then consummate. Sometime later, the bride becomes hesitant in this particular story. Perhaps she's homesick. And the groom declares that she's not meant to be a slave girl. She's meant to be cherished. She will be given fine food, nicer than he gives his own family. She won't be forced to do domestic housework. She could just sit and be beautiful and loved. And with all this, Ishtar seems to be fairly well won over. The two become so close, in fact, that they become the cultural model of lovers, the way we reference Romeo and Juliet in modern times. There are a fair number of love poems and, in fact, erotic hymns to Ishtar and Dumazid, the holy couple, and they often seem to be used allegorically as stand-ins for generic lovers. In fact, the account of the wedding I just briefly summarized may well be intended as a model for upper-class weddings in general. There was nothing particularly divine about it. 
For example, we have one hymn where Ishtar is spending the day just dancing around town until, as evening sets, she happens across her lover Dumazeb. They hold each other, cuddling outside into the night, at which point the still unmarried Ishtar begins to panic. I need to go home. I'm up past bedtime. What lie will I be able to tell my mother? And smooth Dumazid says, Tell her you were out dancing with your girlfriends and lost track of time. These are the lies of women, so tell your mother this, and we can make love under the moonlight. Sometime later, it was clearly successful. But she was home again, and she spots Dumazid from her window, standing at the gate of her parents' house. She is immediately nervous. What if a neighbor sees and says something to her mother? But at the same time, her nerves heighten her anticipation, and she considers just how perfect he is for embracing. And with these sorts of stories, we really see the two as archetypes more than characters, and how perfectly the 4,000-year-old writings really capture the feelings of love, showing us how basic human emotions don't seem to have changed a bit in all of human history. And that archetypical behavior continues in hymns that describe married life, including many that are frankly too erotic to post on a family-friendly podcast. I could complain about the perverse standards of modern appropriateness, but instead I'll read one of the few things I can. Ishtar says... My own parts, a well-watered and open-up mound, who will be their plowman? My parts, the moist and well-watered ground, who will put an ox there? Sweet lady, I, Dumazid the king, shall plow them for you. To which she cries out, Oh, plow in me, man of my heart! Silly, sweet, and passionate the plowing metaphor being a pretty common one in these for obvious reasons. Then we have hymns that discuss the other side of the relationship, which are basically long lists of the various presents that the husband will give to the wife in order to secure her affections. Milk and butter feature prominently in these lists because that's the domain of the god Dumazid, but also because they are in the category of products that, for most Sumerians, were luxury goods, but at the same time affordable enough for its average citizen to enjoy sometimes, and so would be good things to promise a lover, nice enough to be appreciated, but cheap enough to be affordable on occasion. Unless, of course, you were a shepherd and could afford to give them to your woman every day, making you a nice catch by Bronze Age standards. Of course, like any couple, we also see them arguing. In one tablet, Ishtar accuses Dumazid of not respecting her family enough, to which he replies that his family is a perfectly good replacement for her family. And they discuss this for a bit before resolving the argument with makeup sex, and Dumazid gives her a gift of jewels the next day. And in all this discussion of archetypical husband and wife, we get a particularly interesting one probably meant as a joke, though the punchline is sadly fragmented. It was a time of particular abundance for the household of Dumazid, and one evening he said to his wife Ishtar that he is going out to the sheepfold to check on the sheep. But this was a lie. He had other motives in his heart. His sister, a woman named Geshtin Anna, was living in the barn with the sheep. This was apparently a pretty normal thing to do, 
and when he got there, they had a late-night snack and some beer. Then Dumas had said, Look, let me show you something. And he brought a lamb that he'd clearly marked out as a particularly raunchy little boy into the lamb's mother's pen. The lamb proceeded to mount its own mother, and Dumasid laughed out, saying, <laughs> Look what it's doing! It's mounting its own mother, and they're both enjoying the experience! Dumasid then broke up the sheep copulation and carried the lamb to another pen, where the horniest little lamb began to mount its own sister. Dumasid, in a move that was probably meant to be hilarious, looked square in his sister's eyes and asks, Look, sister, what's the lamb doing? Dumazid's sister, who affects not to understand, and so Dumazid spells it out for her. The lamb is copulating with its own sister, and they're both enjoying it. The sister, Geshtinana, is unimpressed. And in the last line of clear dialogue, she says, You intend to degrade me and mount me like an animal? And from the remaining fragments, the answer seems to be yes. Dumazid then proceeds to cheat on his wife in a barn with his unwilling sister. It's tempting to say that while the previous hymns talk about things that are universal about love and relationships. This one is a bit dated, reflecting particularly Bronze Age morals. But on the other hand, there are still plenty of people who consider incest a punchline, particularly when referring to the rural classes. The shepherd can still marry the nice city girl, but he still feels the urge to go out and relieve his urges among sheep and close relatives. Still, it is written in a particularly creepy way and shows us that our archetypical husband is not actually a perfect husband either by our standards or even theirs. And having established the relationship, background that would have been generally familiar among Sumerians and even later Mesopotamians, we open with our heroine, goddess Ishtar, as she again wanders the world like she spent so much time doing in the last episode, when the idea forms in her head to go visit the underworld. She has done quite a lot of conquering in the earth and heavens, and an opportunity seems to have risen in the underworld. And so, she abandons all her temples and carries out her seven divine powers, making them into accessories that she can wear. Thus equipped, she left behind everything except her attendant Ninshiber, the winged bodyguard who helped her steal a ship from her father Ea last episode. She arrived at the Temple of Ganser with its gate into the underworld and stopped just outside and said to Ninshiber, Listen, if anything happens to me while I'm in there, I want you to make a prayer to Enlil to help me out. And you know, if, if he won't help me out, make a prayer to Nana just in case. Uh, and if he doesn't help me, how about you also make a prayer to my father, Ea? He, he will help for sure. And with her back up in place, she approached the gate to the underworld. She orders the doorman to open the gate, and the doorman demands to know just why she wants entry into the gate of no return. Ishtar says that her sister's husband has just died and that she was traveling to attend the wake. Her sister, Ereshkigala, 
is a goddess of the underworld, and it seems odd to me that her, her husband could die at all, being a lord of the dead and already living in the underworld, but I guess it does make sense that the dead would want to be most careful about having good funerals. Her sister, Oresh Gala, lets her enter, but instructs the doorman that he's to have her remove all of the objects of power that she is bringing into the underworld. Oresh Gala knows about the destruction of Mount Ebi from last episode, and is taking no chances with an aggressive and acquisitive goddess of war. And so Ishtar enters the gate, only to have all of her gems of power taken from her. They close the gate in front, they close the gate behind, and she's trapped in like an airlock of the underworld. And they say, well, you need to take all your clothes off. She says, what do you, what do you mean, take all my clothes off? She, she protests with each of these items, and they, they say, no, you be silent. No one can challenge the rituals of the underworld. And she is, in the end, delivered naked to the throne of her underworld sister, Oreshka Gala. She stands there, dirty, naked, shamed from being forcibly stripped and presented like a prisoner for judgment. But she is a goddess of power, and Oreshka Gala has badly misunderstood if she thought removing a few enchanted gemstones was enough to make her submit. The pretense of attending the wake is dropped, and a fire of ambition burns in Ishtar's eyes as she glares at her sister. There is no physical battle here, just a contest of wills as the eyes of a lord of the underworld, seated upon her throne and surrounded by loyal courtiers, met an interloper out of her element and without her collected artifacts of power. And as eyes locked, the power of the two goddesses contested in their hearts. And Ishtar, queen of heaven, made her sister Oreshkigala, queen of the underworld, rise from her throne. And no sooner had she done that than she had revealed her ambition. And like a hidden camera show, the curtain was pulled back to reveal the seven high gods, the Anunnaki, who had been watching her from the heavens. With their combined power, they cast death on her, full of anger and guilt, catching her in the trap and turning her into a corpse. A corpse which they hung on a hook high in the underworld for all to see. Meanwhile, on the surface, her attendant Ninshipper waited faithfully for three days and three nights, at which point it was clear that her mistress had been trapped in the underworld and it was time to activate her contingency plan. Ninshipper made ritual funerary shows of grief, singing laments and beating drums in all the temples. Her display of grief was so great that she began to cut herself with her nails and wore the poorest, most miserable clothes when she finally walked into the temple of the high god Enlil. She pleaded with Enlil, high god of wind and patron of the city of Nippur, to have mercy and release the precious jewel of the heavens, Queen Ishtar. After all, she reasoned, Ishtar wasn't really dead. She didn't belong in the land of the dead. But Enlil was furious and raged at the loyal, honest attendant Ninshaber. Ishtar desired all the power of heaven and earth, and still that was not enough to sate her endless ambition. She wanted the powers of the underworld that are not even right to desire, much less obtain, since who but the dead 
those who are trapped in the underworld, could rule the underworld. Why in the heavens did she think she could follow her mad ambition to such a place and still be allowed to return? It was as Ishtar had thought. Enlil will not help her in this matter. And so, as instructed, Ninshiba repeated her plea to the god Nana, god of the moon and patron of the city of Ur. But he too spoke out against Ishtar, saying, Now that we have her trapped in the underworld, why would we let her out? She has too much ambition and should have known that you can't simply walk into the underworld without a price. And if Nana wouldn't help her, Ninshiba had one more temple to supplicate. Ea, god of wisdom and patron of the ancient city Eridu, and in some genealogies the father of Ishtar, though that does seem to be a complicated matter, was more receptive, though. Why does she do these things, he fretted. She makes me worry so much. And, scraping some dirt from his fingernail, the god of creation makes a life-giving plant in a bottle of life-giving water, then creates two small helper fairies to go carry them. They didn't call them fairies. I'm not really sure what they are, but they sure seem like fairies, so we'll call them that. Aya told the fairies that if they fly quick enough, they can slip past the gates of the underworld and arrive at the court of Ereshka Gala. The winged fairies were nothing if not fast, and soon they stood before the queen of the underworld, her clothes unkempt, her hair matted and unwashed, her nails long and cruelly spiked, and though she had just given birth, her breasts were flat and barren. Oh, my heart, moaned the queen of the underworld. From an unseen corner, the fairies offered sympathy for the queen's trouble. Oh, my body, she moaned again. The fairies again spoke kind, gentle words. This broke Ereshkigala from her inattentiveness, and she awoke, greeting whoever it was who had entered. Seeing that it was a minor god, for fairies were no mere mortals, of course, the queen welcomed her to court and offered food and water as a polite offer to the guests. But the fairies had been told, and they knew not to take anything from the underworld, because everything there comes with a price. They said, if you wish to offer me something, you could offer me uh, that corpse hanging on the hook over there, pointing at the goddess who had spent three days rotting on a hook suspended from the ceiling of the underworld. Ereshkigala turns her head to admire her prize, and in that moment, the superfast fairies flew over to the Queen of Heaven and squeezed the life-giving plant and the life-giving water onto Ishtar. Ishtar awoke and, flushed totally with the power of life, began to arise from the underworld, just floating up on her own. But the Queen of the Underworld called out to the Anunnaki, the High Gods, who cast their power to hold her down. Why... Do you think you can just leave the underworld without paying a price, they asked her. The deal was, she could be given a parole, but she had to find someone to replace her. Ishtar accepted these terms. She figured she could find some way to trick her way out of the situation once she made it out from the underworld and was back in her temples. But immediately, she was surrounded by an honor guard to keep her separate from the real world, demons with mace and scepters to surround her wherever she went. Now, these were demons of the underworld. They had no lusts to tempt. 
There was no food or drink of luxury they could be bribed with. These were stone-hearted demons who snatch lovers apart and even take children without pity to death. Thus escorted, she was taken to the surface world. The first person they saw upon passing through the gates of Ganser was Ninshaber, filthy and in peasant robes. The demon said, Give us this person, we'll just let you go. But Ishtar flat refused, saying, Ninshaber has always been loyal. And look at her, she's clearly deep in mourning. She's still loyal even after my death. She's doing all the mourning rituals, she's doing her prayers, she's even mutilating her own skin out of grief. The crew then went to a nearby temple of Ishtar, where they came upon Shara, Ishtar's hairdresser, and found him also in mourning clothes and weeping in despair, unable to even lift his body from the floor. The demons want to take him too, but again Ishtar refuses, since he had been loyal in life and had grieved truly with her death. The same happens to a priest called Lulal, who is also deep in mourning when they encounter him. The demons want to take Lulal, but again Ishtar will not let them take a loyal man who is mourning for her. And with all this travel, Ishtar begins to pine for her lover Dumazid. And so they walk to Uruk where he is king and living in the palace. Remember, it's very unclear the extent to which he is a mere shepherd and to what extent he is some sort of god-king. His character shifts between the two as suits any given narrative. And when they arrive, they see him seated on his throne, dressed in magnificent finery, drinking luxuriously. And when they enter, they see him in an argument with his court officials. He is insisting that he wishes to hear pipe and flute music to pass the time pleasantly, while his officials are saying he should be observing the period of mourning more appropriately. It is his own wife and a goddess, after all. Needless to say, Ishtar was on the side of the officials, and upon seeing her lover so callously ignoring her death, she grows enraged. Screaming at the demons, she orders them to take faithless Dumazid in her place, and out they dash. Now, it so happens that a few days prior, Dumazid had seen a prophetic dream prophesying some sort of doom. And so, upon seeing the demons, he was more ready than he otherwise would have been. He flees the demons, the grim reapers of the ancient gods, and cries out to Shamash the sun, who is a protector of Uruk and likely one of the gods who has been in on the conspiracy to keep Ishtar trapped in the underworld. And so, just as the demons get their iron claws on the shepherd king, his hand and feet turn to snake tentacles, and he's able to slip from their grasp. Granted by the gods the stealth of a snake and the speed of a hunting falcon, he is able to flee into the fields outside Uruk, and he seeks refuge in his sister's house. Bursting into the door, his sister, Geshtan Anna, takes one look at the hideously mutated form and knows immediately that the prophetic dream has come to pass. She begins to lament his death already, but he quickly begs for her to hide him. She promises not to tell anyone that he's there, and soon after finding a hiding spot, a group of demons is knocking on his sister's door. When she opened the door, the demon said, You know who we are. There are none who can escape their time, none who can avoid our pursuit. We are not kind. We are not good or evil. We are simply 
inevitable. Show us now where your brother Dumazit is hiding. But Geshtinana spoke not a word to the demons. Furious, they cast a skin disease on her genitals, but she still held her tongue. Then they scratched her face apart, scarring her beauty, but she still held silent. Then they flayed the skin off her back, but she still held silent. Then they poured hot tar in her lap, but she still held silent. No torture the demons of the underworld could devise shook her loyalty to her brother. And finally, one of the smaller demons said, Let's give up on this and go check the barn. The demons pulled out axes and daggers and stormed the barn, spotting Dumazid and finally dragging him down to his death. But Ishtar is the goddess of love as well as war. She sees all the women who still get to hold their lovers, and she cries out that she misses her man. The whole world darkens from her foul mood. Wars grow bitter and love withers away in the world. Even six months later, she's still weeping bitterly when another distraught woman enters her temple. Geshtinana, sister of Dumazid, cries out to Ishtar, saying that she cannot bear to live without her beloved brother. Geshtinana is tearing at her own skin in grief and begging before the goddess that there must be some way for death to take her instead. Well, Ishtar perks up at hearing this, grabbing Geshtinana and shouting to the highest and lowest gods that she has a substitute for Dumazid. Ishtar's sister, Ereshkigala, looks over Dumazid's sister and announces that, yeah, she is an acceptable replacement. Except that the Shepherd King has already spent half the year in the underworld. The deal they end up making, then, is that Dumazid has to spend half the year dead, but his sister can take his place the other half of the year every single year. Ishtar immediately accepts the deal and rejoices allowing the world to brighten again. And this, of course, is the origin of the seasons. For six months, Ishtar weeps and makes the weather poor because her lover is dead. But for the other six months, it's just some random girl, Geshtin Anna, who is dead, and no one cares about her, even though she seems far more loyal and worthwhile than the faithless Dumazin. Perhaps the moral here is that life isn't fair, though... Really, the moral intended was probably that death comes to all. In any case, these have been the tales of Ishtar and Dumasid, the greatest love story in ancient Mesopotamia, or so they seem to have thought back then. There are still more tales of Ishtar and more tales of the other gods, but next week I'm going to try something a little different, something a little less mythical and a little more grounded. You see, I've gotten distracted from 4,000-year-old myths and hymns lately because I've come across some of the 4,000-year-old letters written on various topics. In particular, we have a fair bit of correspondence from one King Shulgi of Uruk, who lived from 2094 to 2047 BCE. So join us next week when we will hear the voices of the dead as we dig into the most ancient mailbag and try and get a better sense of how the men of the Bronze Age thought and lived. Thank you for listening.